approaching this passage, all of it, and, uh, and what God is saying right here, I believe, in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, is this. False teachers are dangerous. They are dangerous. These people that claim to be a Christian authority, but don't actually represent Jesus, they're dangerous. As in, high voltage, risk of mortal peril, leave now if you want to preserve your life, dangerous. Today we're going to see why. What makes them so dangerous? Why look out for them? Whether you're Christian or not a Christian, what makes these guys so dangerous to you? And then having looked at the danger of false teachers, we're going to see how that leads to Paul's demand for them to be silenced. Here we go. So the danger of false teachers and how that underlies the demand against false teachers to silence them. So two things. First, the demand, the, the danger, and then second, the demand. Let's pray together and we'll get into the text. Lord, thank you for your word and that you do reveal yourself to us. We humbly ask just that you would speak clearly to us this morning. You know where each of us is at. Um, we pray that you would speak to our minds and hearts in exactly the way that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, when I mentioned the horrific danger of false teachers, maybe I looked a little bit like this to you because we all ignore the safety briefing, right? <laughs> None of us really listen. I don't know, I saw Jesse, Jesse you're saying, oh, no, I listen. Good, very wise, very wise. But the, the rest of us, right, and this is me included, I'm pulling out my phone when I shouldn't be on my phone while you're on the plane, and, and I'm just browsing that rather than listening. Because, like, we know the story. I've heard this before, and we understand that Qantas and, and your insurance companies, you know, this is very important for you, but the rest of us, we know, so let's just get on with the flight. But if the plane was to actually start going down, wouldn't you wish that you have listened to that lady? <laughs> like, like, oh, where is that strap you're meant to pull? And actually, where is the exit? So I'm going to tell you why you ought to listen to this warning about false teachers. What makes them so dangerous? And the first thing has to do with their character. Open up your Bibles, Titus chapter 1, verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, totally fine. Um, pull out your phone. Like, do it now, grab your phone. I want you to see these words for yourself and not just take my word for it. So grab your phone and just put into Google Titus, the word Titus, and then the number one. Right? You might think, using your phone in church, isn't that rude? No, I, I want to see you. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, you've got a phone in front of you. Titus chapter one and come down to verse 10, the little number 10. Here's what we read. For there are many, and he's talking here about the false teachers, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. We'll just pause there. I want us to think about those three descriptions of false teachers. First, insubordinate. So the false teachers that Paul describes are the sort of people that never accept authority. They want authority, but they never accept authority over them. Like kids, think about the person in your class, the boy or girl in your class, who never does what the teacher says. That might be awkward for you guys because you're home homeschooled. <laughs> but, but just picture, like if you are... Soccer team, on your soccer team, there you go. Who never does what the coach says, okay? Um, imagine giving that kid the role of the soccer coach or the role of your school principal. How's that going to go? That's going to be horrible, isn't it? Because they want authority, they want to make up the rules, but they don't want anyone telling them what the rules are. They're, they're going to make up rules that they think are best for them, not are actually best for the team or the class. Now, imagine taking the guy from work who does that and making him your boss. Probably you've had a boss like that at some point in your life. That's awful. So there is a danger to these guys because these false teachers, they're not submitting to the authority of the apostles, the, sort of the authorised teachers in the early church. They're not submitting to the authority of local church leaders, elders, pastors. They're not submitting to the scriptures. They're just teaching things that they think sound right. And they want to be associated with the church. In fact, they want to teach in the church and lead in the church, but they don't want to sit under anyone or anything's authority, least of all God's. They're an authority in their own eyes. We all know how dangerous that can be. First thing, they're insubordinate. Second, these false teachers are empty talkers. And literally in the original language here, 
That is, they are windbags. <laughs> I'll go back there. They are windbags. We all know someone like this, right? And if you're in the room, don't make eye contact. But this, this person, this windbag, this empty talker, in terms of false teachers, is someone who, they're not just someone who like misses the social cues and kind of keeps going on and on. There's someone who keeps going on and on about things that sound very wise, but in fact are very damaging, right? So imagine, for example, you're scrolling through Facebook, and I don't know if you've seen this, but there's those little five-minute recipe videos you've seen. You've seen those before? Or like five-minute crafts and things like that. And they say, oh, if you do this, then you'll, you'll get this amazing thing in just five minutes. So one that I saw was if you put Nutella and flour and milk and eggs into a cup, and then you put it in your microwave for 15 minutes, so it'll come out like a cake in a cup, right? Wow, that sounds pretty cool. And there's a, there's a little video of them doing it. They put the ingredients in. You see the timer go zero, 15 minutes, and then, oh, there it is, cake in a cup, and they're enjoying it. Looks something like that. Now, there's a YouTuber who actually tried it, and she filmed the results. This is what it ended up with. <laughs> the Nutella actually became like this little, like a hunk of plutonium or something, not real plutonium, but it was like this black thing. And, and so... You know, there you go, something that looks helpful, yeah, exactly, <laughs> that looks helpful, sounds wise, sounds handy, but actually, of course, is dangerous. And that's what these false teachers bring. They're empty talkers. They're windbags. They say things that sound helpful, but actually are not. And you know, it abounded in Paul's days. The same is true here. Remember, Paul says, there are many who are insubordinate and who are empty talkers. Many, not just a few. Wherever the gospel grows, wherever church grows, there are going to be false teachers saying empty things, things that sound helpful but aren't. You can go even on the internet and, and just download uh, a supposedly Christian podcast or a Christian sermon, or you can go to the Christian bookstore and pick up a Christian book and it says Jesus on the cover somewhere and it sounds like what it says is helpful. But actually, it's wrong and dangerous. Now, how do you tell the difference? We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, there, there are people out there, and I'll just give one example. They'll say some variety of, this is how to live your best life now, right? That'll come up in the sermon or the book or the YouTube. Here's, God wants to live, you to live a blessed life. Here's how to live your, your best life now. And here are God's tips, and there's a Bible verse thrown in there. Now, the problem is... That's just pop psychology with some Bible verses thrown in. And it doesn't actually help people. Usually those teachers end up falling because of some moral issue in their life. So you look at their life, you go, how's it going for you? Let alone the people that you're trying to teach, right? And the problem is it sounds Christian. It takes a half-truth. God wants you to live a blessed life and then says, well, here's some Bible verses and some pop psychology tips. And there you go, just follow it. As we'll see soon, that's quite wrong. Third thing, they're insubordinate, they're empty talkers, and they're deceivers. It's not just that they're a bit off base. They're out to swindle you, these false teachers. If you jump down to verse 11, you see that they're actually teaching for, what's it say? Shameful gain what they ought not to teach. These are people who, more often than not, are willing to bend the truth so that they can make some money. Now, common in Paul's day. Common also among the church today. You can turn on the Christian TV, you can grab the book, and you'll see a pastor who has a mansion, really fancy car, some of them even a private jet, literally, and they're you know, they have these things because they've told their congregation, if you give to God, give generously to God. And he'll give back to you, right? You give to him and he'll give you five times back. I've actually sat in some of these sermons before, back when I was a kid. And, and they'd say things like, you know, open up your wallet and look past the fives and tens. Go to the fifties, go to the hundreds, even look past the hundreds. Go beyond because the more you give, the more God will give back to you. And just in case you're new to Christianity, that's a lie. That is not true. The Bible does not teach that. Actually, it teaches that when we follow Jesus, life often becomes a bit harder. <laughs> All who expect to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, says the Bible. 
And with these churches, the unfortunate thing is, the pastor preaches it, give to God, he'll give back to you. He preaches it, people believe it. And the only thing that grows, it's not the spiritual health and maturity of the people, it's not the gospel, the only thing that grows is the size of that church and the size of the pastor's bank balance. Terrible, sad thing. Now, these are the kind of false teachers that Paul warns us about. Insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, swindlers, out for shameful gain. See, he's not just name-calling. He's actually labelling a problem that's there, both in Paul's world and ours. And it's the same deal when you come down to verse 12. Now, at first reading, Paul, remember, might sound like a bit of a racist. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. But notice how the verse starts. These aren't actually Paul's words. Notice it's got little apostrophes around it. He's quoting someone. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Probably this is a guy that was around in the 3400s BC, uh, whose name was Epimenides. Um, he was actually considered one of the great Cretan poets. Um, in fact, among like Greece, uh, Greek literature and, and writing, he's actually considered one of the seven wise men of Greece. So this is like a hero of the Cretans. This is one of their most famous and most well-loved exports, this Epimenides character. What did their hero have to say about them? <laughs> he had to say, liars ever, men of Crete, nasty brutes who live to eat. And the Cretans go, preach it, that's us, baby, we love it. <laughs> Remember what we saw a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the island of Crete and the culture there? This is the place that TripAdvisor has like a thing on their website saying, do not visit. Because if you visit here, like prepare your will in advance. This is a dangerous place to go. Literally pirates circle the coast. They're looking for people to pick off. There are scammers on every corner. This is not a place you want to visit. And the Cretans are like, we're proud of that. We're proud to be the dodgy country that TripAdvisor says don't go to. And so Paul is saying, do you want one of those guys teaching you? One of those guys who's a pirate, who's a swindler, who'll do anything to gain anything, who wants to pull the wool over your eyes so he can scam you? Do you want one of those guys teaching you? Or do you want someone who used to be like that? Right? One of these Cretan guys who used to be, you know, sailing the seven seas or whatever, scamming people on the street corner. But now he's found Jesus and he's received God's forgiveness and God has changed him. Right? He used to be a deceiver, now he's devoted to the truth. He used to be a grifter, but now he's devoted to generous godliness. Who do you want to teach you? That guy or this guy? That's the question he's asking, and that's the character difference. False teachers might sound trustworthy by the claims that they make, that they're an authority on Christian things, but they are liars, rebels, empty talkers, out for shameful gain. They are a danger to anyone who hears them. And that makes even more sense when you see that that's true, not only in their character, but also in the content of their teaching. We get a hint towards that in verse 10. Uh, these guys are deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, this is a group of people around in Paul's days. You might have heard of them as the Judaizers. Uh, these are people who believed that well, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus and that he brings forgiveness, but you've got to follow the Old Testament rituals and laws to really be a Christian, okay? So they're saying you've got to be circumcised, there's one thing, that's one of the Old Testament rituals. Uh, and so really what they're saying, if you went and asked them, you know, what do you think about me as a Christian? They'd say, oh yeah, you know, it's great to be a Christian, it's great to believe in Jesus, but you guys, you Christians who, who just believe in Jesus, you're on like this low level of spirituality, okay? Like, you haven't quite got it yet. You've just sort of entered in the door. But we, we've got the secret. The secret is, you've got to stand together with the whole history of what God has revealed and, and the whole uh, way that he's worked through his people in the past. You need to follow not only the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. Then you'll get on our level. Then you'll truly know God. Then you'll truly be a Christian. That's what they're saying. Therefore, be circumcised, avoid eating this certain food, avoid wearing these certain clothes, don't work on this certain day, make these certain sacrifices in certain places at certain times. You've got to do the lot. That's the content of their teaching. And we hear a, a little bit more about this in verse 14, 
that these teachers are devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people, not the commands of God, notice, the commands of people, things people have made up, who turn away from the truth. Now, what they were saying would have sounded pretty convincing. Oh, we're, we're whole Bible people. We're Old Testament as well as New Testament. Yeah, come with us. But the problem is, right in that last bit of verse 14, these are things that actually turn people away from the truth because they themselves have turned away from the truth. Think about it this way. We all fail at keeping God's commands. I was talking to someone just last week who oh, I was talking about this concept with them. They said, really? You, Dan, a pastor? Do you really? Yeah. Come and follow me for a day, right? Take my wife's place for a day and you'll see. Like, I fail. We all fail at keeping God's commands. Whether you want to talk about uh, the Ten Commandments, or you want to talk about the ritual laws of the Old Testament, you want to talk about just how, how Jesus actually summarized the law when he said it comes down to two things. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Take those two things, and I realize how quickly I actually fail. I don't love God as I ought, and I don't love others as I ought. I don't keep my own standards, let alone God's. And the false teachers, they're right about something here. When we fail at keeping God's standards, the Bible calls it sin, and they're right that sin matters. They're actually really concerned that sin will defile them. I'll give you a picture of what defilement is. Uh, the other day, I, uh, I made a smoothie in the morning for me and for my wife, Sky. And it was a banana and date smoothie, right? Put it in a tumbler, put the cap on, you drink the smoothie. What I did was then put the cap back on the tumbler and left it by the sink. Two days later, I wake up to the sound of my wife hacking and gacking in the kitchen because she's opened the top of the smoothie and now the smell has like defiled <laughs> the kitchen. It's, it's infected everything. And at that moment, apparently, our cat Charlie, the 16-year-old ragdoll, he worked, walked into the kitchen and with no lead-in, no warning, just <laughs> vomited on the floor, right? There's a picture of defilement. It's, it's contained in this thing, but then you open it and <laughs> it goes everywhere and affects everything. False teachers, they, they know their Old Testament, these false teachers, these Judaizers. They know that sin defiles. It doesn't stay contained to just one area of our life the top opens and it goes everywhere. It actually starts in our heart and then goes everywhere all throughout our life. They know that and they know that therefore they need to do something about it. The problem is they're wrong about how to do something about it because what they say is this problem of defiling sin for which God is going to bring his just judgment can only be dealt with by us following the rules better. Right? So go and be circumcised and keep this law and do this thing and do that. But they're wrong. The answer is not in keeping the rules. They've, they've turned away from the truth. The answer is in trusting that Jesus followed God's laws perfectly on our behalf. We couldn't. We all failed. But Jesus didn't. He lived the life that we ought to have lived. And then as the perfect, innocent son of God who always obeyed his father, he died the, the death we ought to have died. On the cross, right? You see this cross behind? It's not just like a, a bit of Christian marketing, okay? A cross is a real place. It was a Roman punishment 2,000 years ago and Jesus died on one. Why? Not because he committed a crime. Actually, the opposite. It's because he committed no crime and he chose to go to the cross to take the death we ought to have died. A death under the judgment of God for our defiling sin that starts in the heart and infects every part of us and about which we can do nothing. Jesus died on the cross to take our place, live the life we ought to have lived, die the death we ought to have died. Now, here's the thing that these false teachers get really wrong. They think that like these, if you want to picture these defiled clothes, sin-soaked, if you just scrub harder, then the sin will come out. Right? Follow this rule, this ritual, etc., and it'll come out. But Jesus says, no, you need to actually get rid of those old clothes and get new ones. They're so defiled, we're going to take them outside and like put them in the auto bin. In actual fact, what happens is Jesus wears our sinful, sin-soaked clothes for us on the cross. He's punished on our behalf, and then he gives us his perfect, new, innocent, pure clothes. 
clothes. And we get a picture of that in verse 15. Come down there. To the pure. That is, those who have been made pure by faith in Jesus. Right? They've been given the new clothes and they've got them on by faith. To the pure. All things are pure. It's not saying that anything you do is therefore right and good. What we're saying is that you don't need to keep the purity laws of the Old Testament. Jesus kept the law for you. You don't need to follow those rituals anymore. But, here's the contrast, to the defiled and unbelieving, and notice the contrast there, unbelieving, not believing in Jesus, nothing is pure. They're still in their sin. They're trying to scrub it out and it's not working. Because no amount of rule following or ritual keeping will save us. The reason, however, that this false teaching is so alluring, even to us today, is I think that there is actually a comfort in following the rules. Like we, we look at ourselves and then we sort of go, oh, there's something really wrong with me. And the answer is actually sin, right? It's, it's corruption in our relationship with God. But we, we look and we go, there's something really wrong with me. And we tend to then compensate by trying to cling to rules and restrictions. So someone might go, well, man, I'm, I'm really ho- hooked on looking at pornography just all the time, right? And I can see how it's damaging me and I can see that it's sin. But what I need to do then is make harsher rules for myself. I need to just set some limitations, right? Then what will happen is I'll be able to follow them and I'll kick the habit and then I'll feel acceptable to myself and maybe I'll even be acceptable to God. This happens all the time. Someone might say, I'm lazy, I'm always scrolling on my phone, so what I need to do is read like that Atomic Habits book or something and then just start making lists of all the important things to do in my day and I've just got to follow that list no matter what, right? Be harsh with myself. Or I'm, I get so bitter and angry at my wife or my husband or my kids. Right? And so what I've got to do is learn to smile. I've got to learn to think positive. I've got to learn to count to five and breathe before I explode. It's just variations of the same thing. It's just following rituals and rules and restrictions to try and change the heart. But let me ask, if you're doing that at the moment, trying to deal with this, this problem of sin in your life, how's it going for you? <laughs> Because if you're anything like me, you've probably experienced that it doesn't work. We need God to change our hearts. We need God to give us new clothes and make us pure by faith in Jesus. And any teacher who tries to tell you that God's key to life is this seven-step program or this special spiritual practice or this psychological tip or this list of do's and don'ts is a false teacher. Because... The gospel plus anything ruins everything. (laughs) It needs to be faith in Jesus alone that makes us pure and changes our hearts. This is why false teachers are so dangerous. Because of their character and because of their content. And so Paul says we need to do something about them. We've got to do something. Considering how dangerous these guys are. They are a threat to you. So we come back to verse 11 where Paul says, they must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. I wonder if you can hear the connection there. There's a demand, they must be silenced, but what's sitting behind that demand is is a reason, right? And the reason is the danger. They must be silenced since... They are upsetting whole families. Literally, in the original, it's, it's they are turning families upside down. That's what this false teaching is doing. And so something has to be done. And remember that the context here we saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, if you come back to verse 5, uh, Paul has left Titus in Crete to appoint elders, leaders, pastors, ministers over churches. And so the context here is he's saying to elders, pastors, ministers, you're the ones who've got to do something about this. Take your responsibility seriously. Get in and silence these false teachers. And we hear that again in verse 13. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Isn't that a bit harsh though? Isn't that harsh? It sounds like you're cutting someone with words. Rebuke them sharply. That's not nice. Shouldn't we listen to people who disagree with us? Shouldn't we just, just have an open mind and maybe reason with them? Hey, there might be something good in what they're saying. This isn't very nice. 
you know, here's an interesting thing. There's nothing in the elder's role description in Scripture that says an elder is meant to be nice. (laughs) You thought about that before? And some people out there, and, and probably some people still in here, have this view of elders or pastors, and the picture is something like this. His job is to get up on a Sunday morning and preach a nice sermon that makes us feel nice about ourselves. And then during the week, his job is to sit down and have a nice cup of tea or coffee, right, and listen to our problems. And then he's meant to give a nice prayer at the end of listening, right? And if something comes up, there's an issue of sin or there's an issue of error, well, well, he'll be nice about it. You know, he'll just be really patient about it. He'll let people come to their own conclusion. He'll be nice. And it's like, no matter what a pastor or elder does, there's this atmosphere of just, the biggest rule is he has to be nice. Have you heard that before? I'll tell you what, I've encountered that. (laughs) But there is nothing in the Bible that says an elder's job is to be nice. Now, he's meant to be gentle with opponents. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, right? Verse 25, be gentle with opponents that they might repent and come to the faith. Uh, And he's meant to not be quick-tempered or violent. We saw that in the character description last week. But that's quite a different thing to nice, right? Because put it this way, in Acts chapter 20, Paul says that false teachers are coming in to the church like wolves. Check this out. I know that after my departure, says Paul, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, people claiming to be Christians, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Given this is what false teachers are like, what kind of guy do you want defending you? Do you want the nice guy? Who's going to be like, oh, hey, look, there's a wolf. Maybe we should go listen to it. Maybe we should give it a pat. Maybe it has something helpful for us. Or do you want the guy whose like, arm is strong enough to defend you quickly from that thing that is coming in to eat you? Which guy do you want? <laughs> False teachers, it says here, have a power to draw away disciples of Jesus. They draw away disciples after them. And we need elders and pastors who are discerning, who know their Bibles well, who know theology well, who have sound doctrine, who know people well, and who are able to call a wolf when they see one. They're able to say, that thing that that guy just said, that's not true. They're able to actually discern where the black and white is, okay? And hopefully you can hear that actually in the preaching style that we have at our church. We take this really seriously. We must silence and even rebuke false teachers. And in fact, interesting thing in one thirteen, as Titus puts it, this is actually the only hope that those false teachers might change. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That's actually talking about the false teachers there. That's the only way they're going to change. If you actually call them out and say, hey, you're wrong about this. That's not what the Bible teaches. There is at least the slim possibility that they might go, okay, I'm listening. Let's talk about that. And God might grant them repentance in their heart. If you don't call them out, they're just going to go on in this self-deceived pattern. So there is actually the nicest thing (laughs) to do for false teachers is call them out on their lies. Call them out where they're mistaken. So we must silence them. And uh, what I would say is expect that of your elders Expect that of your pastors as you think about me and Rob and any future elders we have here. Be looking for guys, be looking for us to be doing that faithfully. That we would actually be calling out things that are wrong and we would be uh, showing how Scripture speaks the truth instead of those things. We'd reason through them. And when you hear that we're doing that, don't go, oh, gee, he's so, oh, he's just so harsh. Yeah, he's not nice. Bring into your thinking instead... No, that's what an elder should be doing. He's defending us. Elders must silence false teachers. And we don't just need pastors who can do that. We need people who can do that. We need whole churches that can do that. Because here's a, a vision that me and Rob actually have for this church, okay? I don't mean vision like God has put it in my head and it's, whoa. Yeah. I just mean, here's something we want to see for this church. What we want to see 
is people who know their Bibles so well and who know Jesus so deeply that we actually don't really need to say anything, right? When there's something kind of dodgy that comes out of left field, right? We're, we're looking around and it's like Mike and Julie and Rosie, uh, you guys just know your Bibles and know Jesus so well that you're already out ahead of it. You're like, yeah, we wouldn't believe that ridiculous thing. That's the vision we've got for this church. Like, like people who just know Jesus and their Bible so well that, that all of us are doing this together. But the question is, how do we get there? How do we silence false teachers together? I want to stand on two things that we might do in order to take this more seriously as a church. And there's lots more we could say, but you know, here's two ways that are relevant for us right now. The first is protect the platform. And I know that's a bit of a cringy statement because in our culture, we talk a lot about platforming people and about cancelling people and all that sort of stuff. I'm not meaning it in that sense. What I mean is literally there is a platform from which teachers operate in church circumstances. This is one of them, like this flimsy music stand thing, right? This is one of the platforms. Uh, we need to protect it. So, for example, we don't just have any Joe Blow get up here and preach on a Sunday morning. Uh, if we have a guest preacher come and, and speak then we vet them. We make sure that they really do believe the gospel and they're going to teach it, right? Similarly, the role of elder has to be really well vetted. If someone is going to lead and teach you, then you better know that they are a gospel teacher. They're going to teach true doctrine. Really important. So when Rob and I, for example, might put a name forward at some point in the next year or so, um, we're saying we believe that this is one of those guys, and then it's up to you, those of you who are members here, to weigh that up and go, well, okay, do we know that? Investigate, ask them questions. Don't just put anyone into eldership because there's a gap. That way madness lies. I've seen it, it ruins churches. This is a very serious role, the role of teacher and elder. But let me suggest that as we're you know, protecting this platform, uh, that there's another kind of platform that we need to protect and it's not here at church, it's actually in your homes. Okay, uh, It's the platform of what you listen to, what you read, what you think about. So it's the platform of TV and it's, it's your phone, it's your radio if you still have one of those. Uh, all of those different things are platforms from which teachers, both true and false, can actually influence your thinking and living. Uh, so, for example, you can go down to the Christian bookstore. Right, we've got one here on the coast, Cornerstone. It's a good Christian bookstore. I buy from there. You can go down to, to Sydney. You can buy from Reformers or you can buy from Kurong or whatever. But here's the thing. The platform will not do the work of discernment for you. Right? I was reading an interview between a pastor and a, a Christian book publisher the other day. And the, the pastor was holding in his hand a Christian so-called book that was teaching just all this wacky stuff. Like, there aren't three members of the Trinity. There's actually nine. It's just really weird stuff. And he said to the publisher, why did you publish this? This is hokey. This is dodgy. Why did you publish it? And the Christian publisher said, and I quote, oh, we publish everything. Right? The platform will not do the discernment for you. <laughs> you need to be the one, together with us as a church, who does the work of discernment. And so if you're hearing something through even the Christian TV or whatever, you're reading a Christian book and you encounter something you're just not sure about, Talk with us. Talk with me, talk with Rob, talk with your growth group. Discern. And if you're reading something and you're pretty sure, no, this is actually false, just turn it off. Close the book. Get rid of it. Throw it out if you want. Right? That There's so much better things you could be reading or watching. Honestly, better uses of your time. Come and talk to us. We'll recommend you something. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that, oh, just because this guy makes me feel hopeful and optimistic about life, or he's got a good smile, or he seems like a godly guy or whatever, that he's a true teacher. Now, look at what he preaches and look at how he lives. So there's the first thing, protect the platform. Second thing, overpower them with the truth. What do we do with false teachers? Overpower them. Let the truth speak louder in your life. Jesus often did this, right? He engaged with false teaching and, and he'd, he'd not just sort of go, oh, yeah, let's, let's talk about what you're talking about. He'd go, no, you're wrong, here's why, and here's the actual true thing, all the time. This is kind of like telling real from counterfeit. I don't know if you've seen the, the new uh, Australian banknotes, but right in the top left corner, I think it's the top left, there's an image of a little bird, and if you tilt the note, the bird kind of like flaps its wings in this kind of two-frame thing, looks a bit static, but 
Apparently, only the real banknotes have that. The fake ones don't. If you know the original well, you can tell the counterfeit. That's why it's so important to be here at church regularly. You need pastors who are going to open God's word and who know you and are going to bring that word to bear on your life. You need that. I need that. Be here. And then let the, the preached word propel you into reading your Bible, immersing yourself in Scripture during the week. I actually know that some of you are, are memorizing the book of Titus at the moment, which is just so impressive. I think that's amazing. <laughs> um, I, I'm joining you in doing that as well and stumbling along in my way. But I, I wonder if you've noticed, like, as you've been memorizing it, it's just become more part of you. You've noticed that? Like, you're thinking in the, the words of this book a bit more. That's great. That's part of overcoming false teaching with the truth. It means when you encounter something, you're like, nope, because Titus says this. Memorize scripture. Last thing, I'll give you one thing. If you want to just sharpen yourself a bit more, right? You're reading your Bible, you're here at church, fantastic. If you want to sharpen your thinking a bit more, get familiar with creeds and confessions. I know that that might sound a bit weird, but historical documents that actually articulate the boundaries of the Christian faith really, really well. And here's one, right? As Rob says, sell everything and buy this book, except it's available for free online, so you don't have to sell anything, you just get it, okay? The Second London Baptist Confession. Write that down. If you don't know what that is, write it down. The Second London Baptist Confession. Read that. It is an excellent summary of the things that that we hold to be true about the faith. Some close-handed things, gospel things, as well as some more peripheral things. Um, But read it through. There's Bible passages related to each point. You can look up, you can discern, you can chat with us. Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Overpower false teachers with the truth. And in just a moment, we're going to see that gospel truth on display. We're going to see Rosie get baptised. We're going to see Petra get baptised. And this is why believers' baptism is so important, guys. It's because we see the gospel as these guys go into the water and come out. We see that Jesus takes their sin and removes it. Not in this moment. That's already happened for them by faith, but they're putting it on display for us. It's going to be awesome. But I'll just finish with this. What's your relationship to false teaching right now? Hopefully by looking at the danger and the the demand against false teaching in the Bible, you can say, yeah, we, we need to silence it. That's what we need to be involved in doing. But maybe as you've been listening, you've come to the conclusion that actually I've been entertaining false teaching in my life. I've been believing false teaching. And if that's you, let me just say that Jesus has his arms open for you. He's not saying you're dumb for believing the wrong thing. Right? He's not saying that you've got to do all these rules before you can come to me. He's not here to swindle you. He's here to save you. So come to him, the way, the truth, and the life. Find forgiveness. Find him giving you the gift of a new identity in him, a pure, forgiven identity. Come and find the truth you need in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word and that you reveal yourself to us. And I pray that you would help us as a church to take these things seriously. To go forward in trusting Jesus, but then also preaching the gospel above all else. And where things threaten that gospel, threaten our faith in it, threaten our ability to live it out. Help us name them, discern them, and silence them. Pray now for Rosie and for Petra. Uh, And for all of us who are members here as we um, commit to really helping them go forward in the gospel. Lord, please put the gospel clearly on display here that we would praise you for your wonderful saving work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Dan. Very clear, brother. And a lot to discuss today after service and in your growth groups about that. Um, Yeah, well done, clear, good exposition of the text. Um, One of the things that Paul says to Timothy is he's to rightly handle the word of truth. And great job doing that this morning. Um, So what we're going to do now, as Dan was just mentioning, is have two baptisms. Um, And and you might go, okay, Uh, Dan, you just did a great job clarifying that. Uh, Oh, so 
what, what, what is this sort of thing that's going on here? Uh, what, what's, what's, what's happening? Well, baptism is simply an outward symbol of an inward spiritual reality. Okay, it's an, it's an outward symbol, what has happened, but actually what's identifying what's happened inwardly, spiritually. So, so baptism, what, what this, this act right here, it doesn't save. Okay, so Petra and Rosie are not saved by being baptized. Rather, it's a testimony, a celebration, that the fact that they have been saved. You with me? So, so it's not actually, the, this, this doesn't save, but it's a testimony to, and, and as Jesus says, all throughout the Gospels, as well as John the Baptist and Paul, believe and be baptized. And so uh, one of the things that we strongly believe here is that uh, those that are in Christ um, have now been born again uh, are to actually celebrate that, to show that um, through baptism. Um, and so we're just thrilled to uh, have you here. Dan and I have had the privilege of hearing both of their testimonies, but you get to hear it yourself uh, as a church because this is not just a spectator thing. Um, as a church, we really believe that um, this person is going public with their faith. And, and this is their, as it were, entry point into the local church. And so this is not just a you kind of, oh, yeah, but you're actually, you're a participant in this. Um, you're actually, this is a, a display of the gospel. And so when you get to hear their testimonies, uh, you can affirm what is being said is true and, and watch them being plunged down into the waters, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, and saying, yeah, as a, as a member at this church, uh, yeah, I'm actually committing with this person, right? I'm actually covenanting with them to say, yeah, I'm with you, sisters. So um, it's really exciting. Any further ado, Petra, uh, why don't you go ahead and come on up, and I've heard your testimony, and it was fantastic, but share that with uh, all of us, please. Good morning, everybody. Do you want me to hold this or do you want to? Yeah, hold it. <laughs> my name's Petra, in case you don't know who I am. Um, I'd like to share my testimony. I'd like to uh, share my testimony with you. I was born into a Christian home and I grew up with six siblings. Throughout my childhood, I went to church. I was christened at six weeks of age. Growing up, I attended Sunday school, scripture, catechism classes, and youth club. I met my future husband at youth club. But before we could marry, we needed to attend professional faith classes, which we did. I remember very clearly at about 10 years of age that I was talking to God and I told him that I wanted to follow him. Even though I attended church faithfully, I never felt that true assurance that I did really belong to God. <clears throat> I felt that nothing I could do was good enough. In my 60s, I started attending a different church. The teaching there was more Bible-based and the message was life-changing. I started to learn there was nothing I could do to earn my salvation. I was, it was only because of what Christ did for me by dying on the cross and giving his life for me that I could have eternal life. We as a family have been through some really dark times. There were times when I just wanted to give up. Now, when I look back over those, those difficult years, I can see God's hand upholding, sustaining me, and he's brought me here to this special day in my life and my relationship with him. I don't know what the future holds, but I know I belong to the Lord Jesus. I now wish to publicly declare my desire to be baptised as a sign of God's saving grace freely given to me. Wow, what a saviour. Amen. Well, Petra, if you can come down in the waters here, I'll join you. In. And one of the things, that I'll, I won't bring the mic in there so we don't get electrocuted, but one of the things that you'll hear me say um, is that, uh, here you go, here's your glasses, is, that, you know, so yes, she believed in Christ. The Lord has worked throughout the seasons of your life, 
But, you know, the gospel, trusting in Christ, it's not just a one-off. It's not like, oh, how old were you? Okay, great, that's done. But you'll hear me, what I'm going to say in the water here is, Petra, are you presently, as in right this very second, trusting in Jesus alone for the hope of uh, eternal life, for that you're forgiven by Christ and Christ alone? And she will be able to respond to that. So um, I'm going to come down in the water. Let me grab my towel and... I'm blessed to have grown up in a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing home. As a child, I regularly attended church and Sunday school, and I've had Christian education since preschool. I knew about God's power, love, and forgiveness, and I knew about Jesus' death and resurrection, and that he did it to save us from our sins, and that we can have eternal life because of it. I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Saviour in primary school when someone in my class showed me in her Bible the ABC Steps to Salvation. A stood for admit that I've sinned, B stood for believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and C stood for confess that Jesus is the Lord of my life. I followed the steps with sincerity. However, I became a version of a Sunday Christian. I would seek God in church and school, but in every other part of my life, I relied on my own strength. When I had hard times, I would always try to figure things out by myself, and if I couldn't solve the problem or endure the hardships, then I would turn to prayer. I'd ask God to forgive my sins, but I would then continue to live the rest of my day without him. In high school, more worldly influences started to enter my life, and my mom gave me some books about godly living and applying the Bible to my everyday life. Reading these books helped me build godly habits of prayer, praise, communication, and more. The biggest realization I had from these books was that following Christ and believing the gospel was ultimately my choice that I would have to make and fully commit to, that it's Jesus who I'm following, not my parents or my teachers or my pastors. I also used to go to a youth group on Friday nights. One of my favorite things about youth was worship. It was where I started to reflect on and sincerely declare the words rather than just sing along like I would to any song. And it was also during youth worship that I made the choice from my heart to fully commit my life to God that I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Now I recognize and am so grateful for the things that God has done in my life. I try to place God in charge of my life and what I do, and I try my best to glorify him in whatever I do. It's not easy, and I have to ask God for his help, guidance, and forgiveness all the time, but he still accepts me as his child and friend. I want to be baptized because I want to obey God's commands, leave my old sinful self behind, and show everyone that I'm on God's team.
Praise God, hey, how exciting. Fantastic message and uh, great to celebrate in that baptism with Petra and Rosie. We're going to stand and sing now, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, the Wondrous Mystery of the Gospel that we're celebrating this morning. Why don't you stand and sing with us? the 